Welcome to the Scotts Hill Podcast. At Scotts Hill, our mission is to join God in His work of transforming lives. One of the ways we join God is by studying and proclaiming His Word. So each week, our podcast features our Sunday morning sermons where one of our pastors explains, illustrates, and applies the Bible to our lives. We hope that you are challenged and encouraged by the Word of the Lord. There's been, in 1977... Um, a series of movies began to hit the marketplace that really made an impact on people. Matter of fact, many of these movies, these sequels came out and they became so popular that millions of people all over the world were attracted to these movies. And they loved the theme of these movies. It began in 1977, it continues on even to this day. And people all over the world were captivated by it. People have spent billions of dollars collectively on movies, on merchandise, on costumes, going to conventions dressed up as one of the characters or one of the villains of this movie. In fact, Halloween was last week, and there were many parents, many children, who still dress up as some of the characters that have come out from these series of movies. Let me tell you a little bit about the movie. It is a movie that happened long, long, long ago in a galaxy far away. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Star Wars. And in Star Wars, it captured the, the, the hearts and minds of so many people. How many of you are Star Wars buffs in here? You like Star Wars? How many of you have never seen Star Wars? How many of you have never even heard of Star Wars? You're in a galaxy far, far away, if you haven't. But this is a movie that's been out, and, and the sequels have been coming and coming and coming. But, but the theme of Star Wars is really the story of two Skywalkers, Two different Skywalkers. One Skywalker is Anakin Skywalker, who was a young Jedi Knight who was training in the power of the Force, but was tempted to go to the dark side. He gave in to that temptation, and Anakin Skywalker became Darth Vader. And so Darth Vader, everywhere he went, there was death and destruction and chaos everywhere. He brought it with him. But there was a second Skywalker. His name is Luke Skywalker. Luke Skywalker also was a young Jedi learning the ways of the Force, but he too was tempted to go to the dark side, but he refused to give in to that. He fought against that temptation. He chose to live a life of, of, of I think, of just rightness, living in light, trying to do the good things for people and for humanity. And as a result, he ended up becoming victorious and, and triumphant and win. Now, the story's about those two Skywalkers. Now, if you've never seen the movie, I'm going to give you a spoiler alert. And, and please don't, you shouldn't be a spoiler alert. They came out 46 years ago, Okay. But for some of you going to say, no, 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 really, we were going to watch it as a family this afternoon. (laughs) On our way from church, we were going to stop at Blockbuster and get a copy. No, that's not true. The spoiler alert is this. In the film, we find out that Luke Skywalker is actually the son of Anakin Skywalker, who is Darth Vader. And so what happens the rest of the, the, this movie and these sequels, that the first six wa- sequels, Luke Skywalker is bent on redeeming his father, Darth Vader or Anakin Skywalker. 
And then what we do is we see through a series event that the younger, the second Skywalker redeems the first. In fact, George Lucas, who who is the, the author behind all of this in the filmmaking, said this, the whole goal for the first six episodes was for the redemption of Darth Vader. I thought, that's amazing. When we think of the storyline of the Bible, and particularly when we come to Romans chapter 5, verses 12 and following, we see that same storyline. That the storyline is that the second Adam would come and redeem the first Adam. And when we come in chapter 5 of Romans, this is the whole picture that the Apostle Paul is speaking about. In verses 12 through 21, if you would take your Bibles, open to um, Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 12, going all the way to 21, and then what we're going to see there is this being played out. We're going to see the storyline of the second Adam coming to redeem the first. Now, these are difficult passages. Matter of fact, these have been some of the densest doctrinal passages that many people today still argue over. And Paul in his conciseness and his briefness gives them to us, but they have so much meat and depth to them that we'll not be able to get to all of those today. But what we're going to understand through this passage is a key, very important doctrinal truth that we need to understand. It runs through the book of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. So chapter five I'm going to lay out a couple of things, but before we get there, we last left Paul talking about the the benefits that we have because we're justified by faith. Now, Paul begins the book of Romans arguing all the way up to chapter five. He shifts from an argumentation to an adoration mindset where he begins to praise God for all the wonderful blessings we have because we have been justified by faith in Jesus Christ. But now he's going back into this argumentative mode. He's going to take up an argument because he wants to take us to see the reality of why we are in the condition that we're in because of sin. And so what he's going to do in chapter five is he's going to help us to understand that there are one and only two people you can follow. There's either going to be following a man named Adam or there's going to be following a man named Jesus because Adam is a representative of all of those who have fallen into sin. Jesus is a representative of all of those who have been redeemed by his work on the cross to save us from sin. And the ultimate thought here that Paul is helping us to understand is at the end of the day, you and I will either follow Adam or we'll follow Christ. And he's gonna take us all the way back to the beginning. Now, he takes chapter five and he breaks it up into three sections. I'm gonna give them to you right now so you're gonna know exactly where we're headed. The first thing he lays out is the conflict. The second thing he does is he gives us four contrasts between Adam and Christ. And the last thing is he closes with a great celebration. And we're going to stick to that and go pretty quickly through it. So take your Bibles, Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 12. The first thing we see is the conflict. Here's the conflict. Therefore... And I, I told you, anytime he says, therefore, it's always you have to ask the question, what is the therefore, therefore? 
Because he's spoken about the judgment, because he's spoken about justification by faith all the way up to this point, he's tying it together. He's saying, therefore, I want to remind you something deeper than anything that I've said. Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And, he, and what he's saying here is there is, in, in Romans chapter four, he takes us back to Genesis 12. And he shows us what Abraham did to be counted as righteous before God. But now he takes us all the way back to Genesis 1. And he wants us to understand the implications that Adam has done and how does that impact all of humanity. And in this very verse comes some difficult doctrine, which is called the doctrine of original sin. And a lot of people want to push back on this doctrine. A lot of people want to say, no, 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 no. I don't think that that doctrine of original sin is something we should hold to. And they've created all kinds of other systems which have led them into heresy. So the Apostle Paul is teaching us with clarity what the doctrine of original sin is. Now, he takes us all the way back to the garden. We have to ask the question, what did Adam do? Well, God created Adam. We see in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, God's creation. And on the sixth day of his creation, he created the crown of his creation. He created Adam. And he gave Adam all of the garden. And he had, uh, he had free reign. This was before Adam was married. Eve was not around. And God gave Adam one simple command. He said, and the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. There's the positive side. Adam, you can eat of every single tree. However, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. So what happens? Adam is going along. Everything's fine. God sees that he is lonely, that he needs a helpmate. So God creates a woman from a single rib from his side. He creates her in the, his own image, equal to Adam in every aspect, but different with respect to responsibilities and giftedness. And so they're walking through the garden. They're having a great time. Then all of a sudden, they come to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what happens, Eve is deceived by Satan. She's caused to doubt the goodness of God, the word of God, the heart of God. And what does she do? She takes of that fruit and she eats. And she turns and she gives it to the person, Adam, behind her. And what does Adam do? Adam takes a bite and he eats. And when Adam eats, all of a sudden, all of mankind at that point is impacted by that sin. Now, it's interesting it doesn't say that Eve is responsible for the sins of humanity. It says Adam is. Why is that? For two reasons. First of all, God gave the command to Adam. It was his responsibility to protect his family. He was the one that should have been out in the front. He was the one that should have been confronting Satan. He's the one that should have said, no, 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 Eve. God says we can't do this, but he doesn't. And so what does he do? In his silence, he takes and he eats. See, Eve was deceived. Adam willfully, knowingly chose to disobey. And his disobedience wasn't just eating a piece of fruit. His disobedience was treason to God. His disobedience was idolatry to worship himself. 
His disobedience was a failure to be able to love God the way God loves him. Bottom line, his disobedience was to dethrone God and become the destiny of his own life. And when that happened, a chain of events happened. And here's what they are. Go to the chain. Adam's sin infected the whole world. When he took and ate of that fruit, at that moment, a principle of sin, nature, took place in his own life. And he now was infiltrated with a sinful nature that was deep within him. Secondly, the consequence of Adam's sin is death. God said, the day that you eat of it, you'll surely die. And people say, well, he didn't die. Well, in the Hebrew, it means this. Dying, you will begin to die. And death is going to reign all through humanity. And the third, all die because all sinned. Every person dies because we sin. Now, this is the thing that gets us. It's in the past tense. We sinned. Here's what the doctrine of original sin teaches. That when Adam sinned, you sinned. That we sinned in Adam. We all sinned. And that when Adam made that choice to sin, it was a representative of our choices to do the same thing. Because Adam sinned, we all sin. The nature that Adam took up at that point was a sinful nature, and he passed it down to his children and to his children's children. And through all creation and all of humanity to the point that we are part of the DNA of Adam. And when he sinned, we sinned. Now, some people will say, no, 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 Phil, how can you say that? That's just a philosophy. That's that's an idea. I, I might reject that. How can you prove that that's true? Well, the proof is easy. You die. You die. You see, the cause of sin is death. The penalty of sin is death. The evidence that we have sinned is death, and it always follows it. And you see, the reality is this. We're all going to die. A little baby in his mother's womb who has done nothing of making any kind of choice of whether good or bad may die. Did that child die because of his own sin? Did that child just have a bad attitude towards his mother in the womb because she ate broccoli that night? No, it follows the curse. Here's the proof that this is true. And if you want to push back on it, you can say, I don't believe that's true. I'll say, okay, prove it. Don't die. The mortality rate among humanity is 100%. And then there are people who will push back and say, no, 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 that's not fair. That's not fair. Why do I have to pay because of the sin of Adam? That's not fair. I wasn't there. I didn't get to put a weigh in on that. I didn't get to vote on the issue. Besides, if I were there, I wouldn't have made that choice. I've heard people say that. Well, let me destroy all those arguments based upon three things. Number one, you say it's not fair. Fair has nothing to do with it. It's a moot point because you have already demonstrated yourself a sinner by the choices in your life now. So there's nothing fair about that. Secondly, you might say, oh, but I wouldn't have done it. Remember, Adam is the representative of all humanity. God knew that we, any one of us, would have fallen to that temptation and sinned. You say, I wouldn't have. And I would say to you, you can't even keep yourself from the temptation of your kids' candy from Halloween. 
And besides, if you were put in a situation, listen to me, if you were put into a situation where you could eat of a piece of fruit and have God-like powers and control the universe, you're telling me you would be able to resist that. You see, God knew that when Adam sinned, you and I would have sinned. Here's the third thing. If you cannot see that Adam is your representation for sin, then you will not see that Jesus is your representation for righteousness. And so here's the difficult thing, that we all sin. Now, the thing is this, it's not very hard to prove that. We can look around and we can see that it's in the world. And Paul anticipated some arguments. So in verse 13, he answers those Jewish people who would say, oh, no, 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 no. There's not sin if there's no law. But Paul says this, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. What is he saying there? He's saying, listen, there was always sin in the world ever since Adam because we have inherited sin. And I want to tell you, every person in this room, you were born with a sinful nature. You are not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you are a sinner. Turn to the person next to you and say, you're a sinner. Some of you said that with way too much delight. (laughs) Because we all are. Listen, you don't have to look far to this. Look to your children. Look to your grandchildren. I have never had to send my kids to a disobedient school to learn how to disobey. I haven't sent my teachers to a how to, how to overcome authority and disapprove of your parents' summer camp. I never have. And you haven't either. We never have to teach our kids to say no. We've never had to teach them how to throw a temper tantrum. We've never had to teach them to cry in the middle of the night for their body, for their bottle, because they want their way. We've never done any of those. Those are an eight within every one. I bet you none of you have ever had your toddler come to you one evening and say, mom and dad, you've had a rough day. And here's what I'm gonna do for you. I'm gonna put myself to bed tonight. I'm gonna take my own bottle. I'm gonna cover myself with blankets. I'm not gonna fight. I'm not gonna fuss. I'm gonna grab my passy. I'm gonna go right to sleep because mommy, you need some daddy time. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to bother you till 7 a.m. Have any of you ever had your children do that? I have two wonderful kids and not one time has any of them done that. But both of my kids are inherited with sin, with failures that came from them, from their mother. So um, (laughs) I can't say that in the next service. (laughs) But you see the reality and the danger of this? What's amazing is even the secular world knows this, but here's what they can't understand. They don't understand the concept of it. They think that maybe it's just environmental. They think maybe it's philosophical. They think it's maybe ideological. They don't have any clue about a man by the name of Burton White, who is a child psychologist who's written several books. One book is called The First New Three Years of Life. Here's what he wrote in the book. He says, from 15 to 16 months on, as his self-awareness becomes more substantial, something in his nature we don't fully understand will lead him to deliberately try each of these forbidden activities, specifically to see what will be allowed and what won't. 
In other words, he will begin systematically to challenge the authority of the adults he lives with. Resistance to simple requests becomes very common at this time. And if there's more than one child around, this can be a low point in the parenting. (laughs) Really? Here's the thing they can't say. They can't dogmatically say it's a sinful nature. They don't know what it is. And what does God's word say to us? We inherited this from Adam. This is really important for us to know because every one of us, when we're born, we have a sinful nature. And the result of that comes death because that's part of the curse. And then he says something interesting at the end of chapter 5, verse 13. This has been a very controversial statement. He says, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. What does that mean? Some people say it just means no specificity of law. The law hasn't specified specific things, but they're still guilty even though it doesn't clarify it. But some people will say that this means that Paul is alluding to the fact that there are children who die in childbirth or unfortunate decisions by a parent who may have aborted a child or a a person with mental disabilities who cannot understand the concept of sin and death. And for them, there is no held accountability for that because they couldn't comprehend it. Some people who hold that view take 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 14, which says that the children are sanctified through the believing parents. Some people will take a passage from Samuel where David's child from Bathsheba died and he said, he cannot come to me, but one day I will go to him. And the picture is a picture of God's grace that even though children are not at the age of accountability, they are safe in the arms of God. And many people will hold to that view. Some people will not hold to that view. But the one thing I can say to you is this, for some of you, it's not a theological issue. It's a heart-gripping issue because some of you have lost kids. Some of you have had children die before they were born. Some of you have made the choice of abortion and you've repented of that and asked for forgiveness and you wonder where that child is. One thing we can know for sure is this, that God is just and he always does what's just and what's right. And when babies go to heaven, listen to me carefully, when children who have not reached the accountability who are in the presence of God, they are not there because they are innocent. No, they are there because of the mercy of God because the curse still carries, because they died. And so what we see in this is in the midst of all of this tangling of what happens from the sin of Adam and how it impacts us, makes such a mess of our world. Then he closes his section out to prove it. Death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. It means like this. God, it may be a sin that where God didn't give you a specific command, but you sinned against him anyway. And Adam was just a type to come. He was one man. So those who are in Adam, every one of us, were infected with the sinful nature that we inherited from him that we can do nothing about of ourselves. There's the conflict. 
Now, here's the contrast. In the contrast, he gives us a number of wonderful pictures. And he gives four contrasts. Here's what I'm going to do. We don't have time. I'm going to read each of these as a contrast, and I'm going to give you the points so you can understand them without breaking them all down. The first contrast is found in verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. That's the first contrast. Second contrast, verse 16. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift for many trespasses brings justification. Second. Third contrast. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Now here's a fourth contrast, verses 18 and 19. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. Let me qualify that. For all people who trust Christ as Lord. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so that by the one man's obedience, the many were made righteous. What are the contrasts? I'm going to give them to you. There are four. We're going to go right through them. Number one, trespass and guilt, grace. Those who are living under Adam live a life of trespassing which means willful disobedience, violating a known law, a known command, willfully wanting to dethrone God and be in charge of your own life. Those who are under Adam live a life of trespass, but those who are under Christ live a life of grace. Because in the midst of all of that sin, that unmerited favor has been poured upon you. And rather than living by the sins of the past, you live in the grace of God. And even when you stumble with the sins of the past, you're counted as righteous because of the grace of God. Second contrast, under Adam, there's condemnation. There's judgment. There's the curse of the law that is heavy upon you. Under Jesus Christ, there is justification where Jesus counts you as righteous. He has taken your sins and God has imputed to you the righteousness of Christ. So God has acquitted you of all of the things of your past. Under Adam is death. Death, physical death and a spiritual death. And then in Jesus, there is life an abundance of life. It is a quality of life and a quantity of life that goes on forever. And the last contrast under Adam is disobedience. It's this inability to be able to obey God in the most simplest ways. But in Christ, it is the ability to obey because of the work of the Spirit of God who has redeemed and regenerated your heart you have a new life and a new focus for Christ. Many years ago, I wrote a piece for Easter Sunday. And I made a contrast between what Adam has done and what Christ has done. It's a little bit lengthy, and it won't be on the screen, but I want you to hear of the more than 60 billion people who have ever lived and died since the beginning of time, there are only two categories in which people will find themselves. 
It doesn't matter your age, your race, your religious preference. The difference that matters is not based upon your politics. The difference that matters is which man do I follow? Adam, the first man, was created in the image of God. Jesus, the creator, took on the image of man. Adam's act was one of selfishness, seeking glory for himself. Jesus' act was one of sacrifice, seeking glory for his father. Abraham's rebellion caused men to hide from God. Jesus' obedience made God man's hiding place. Adam lived a life of transgression and grief. Jesus lived a life of truthfulness and grace. Adam was a rebel. Jesus was the redeemer. Adam's rebellion against God plunged all mankind into sin. Jesus' obedience toward God provided all mankind with salvation. Adam died and was buried, and his bones rotted in the ground. Jesus died and was buried. His body was resurrected. Life in Adam leads to eternal death. Life in Jesus leads to eternal life. The only thing that really matters in this life is which man do you follow? In Adam, there's sickness and death. In Jesus, there's healing in life. In Adam, there's a man-centered philosophy. I came, I saw, I conquered. In Jesus, there's a God-centered theology. I came, I saw, I surrendered. By Adam's selfishness, our hearts have become hardened. By Jesus' stripes, our hearts have become healed. In Adam, we are enemies of God. In Jesus, we are sons and daughters of the great high king. In Adam, we were children of wrath. In Jesus, we are children of grace. In Adam, we walk about in darkness. In Jesus, we are the light of the world. And the only thing that matters is which man do you follow? In Adam, we live under fear and doubt. In Jesus, we live under the banner of faith and devotion. In Adam, we're under the influence of the devil. In Jesus, we're under the influence of the Holy Spirit. In Adam, our thinking is futile. In Jesus, our thinking is fruitful. In Adam, we are under the law of sin and death. In Jesus, we live by grace and life. In Adam, life is anemic. In Jesus, life is abundant. In Adam, there's condemnation. In Jesus, there's justification. In Adam, our destiny is hell. In Jesus, our destiny is heaven. The only thing that matters is which man do you follow? In Adam, we say, God, what can you do for me? In Jesus, we say, God, what can I do for you? In Adam, man lives to store up his treasures on earth. In Jesus, he lives to store up his treasures in heaven. In Adam, man lives to gain it all. In Jesus, he lives to give it all away. In Adam, he li- man lives to find favor with man. In Jesus, man lives to find favor with God. In Adam, man says, to me is to die is loss. Jesus says, in Jesus, they say, for me to die is gain. In Adam, man dies and crawls in bed with Satan. In Jesus, man dies and is safely in the arms of his father. The only thing that matters is which man do you follow? In Adam, we live in the shadow of the curse. In Jesus, we live in the shadow of the cross. The tree of Adam was created for God's pleasure. The tree of Jesus was created for man's punishment. Adam's tree was prohibited by God. Jesus' tree was predetermined by God. Adam's tree was appealing to man. Jesus' tree was appalling to man. Adam's tree involved the creature. Jesus' tree involved the creator. Adam's tree brought regret. Jesus brought reconciliation. The only thing that matters is which man do you follow? And there are only two. And what Paul is saying is this, the contrast between Jesus and Adam are worlds apart. And so is the contrast for people who follow. 
Those who are under Adam are still under the curse and death and eternal death is certainty. But for those who are under Jesus, there is righteousness and eternal life. Here's the last thing, the celebration. This is good. We've heard the conflict. We have seen the contrast, but here's the celebration. I love the way he closes it. He says, now the law came in to increase trespass. Paul keeps going back to the law. He can't seem to get away from it. Why? Because he's speaking to Jewish people who find their salvation and their grace in keeping the law. And Paul's reminding them that the law can't save you. The law can point out your sin. It has no power to redeem you of your sin. The law can specify sin. The law cannot make you spiritual before God. In fact, the more law that you have, the more you see how great of a sinner you are. If you were in a hospital room and you were dying of some kind of disease and you had a high fever and I walked in there and I say, listen, let me lay down some rules for you while you're in here. You shall not have a headache. You shall not be sick. You shall not have a fever. You shall not feel nauseous. You shall not feel weak. What have I done? I've piled on you all the things you cannot do that you already know you cannot do, which magnifies the problem. That's what the law does. And then Paul says this. He says, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Listen, this is it. God's grace is greater than Adam's sin. God's grace is greater than the inherited sin that you and I have received. Somebody has said, but but you don't understand how deep I have sinned. Well, let me just say this. The grace of God goes way deeper than any sin you can ever commit. And that's why it is far greater than any sin. And Jesus shows, I mean, Paul shows another distinction here. As sin reigned in death. Now, some of us think, what does that mean? Sin reigns in life. How does sin reign in death? Let me give you the picture. Here's the ultimate end of those who are under Adam. Sin reigns in death. Sin reigns in life. Because you've inherited sin, the curse of sin is death. There is a physical death, but there will be a spiritual death where you will be separated from God for all of eternity. And even in the midst of that spiritual death, sin is still reigning. As you're separated from a holy God, there will forever in eternity be the consciousness of your failure, of your shame, of your guilt, of your powerlessness, of your rejection of the gospel. And so even in hell, sin will continue to reign because there will never be a moment in all of eternity where you're not thinking about your own failure and your shame. It's bad enough to be separated from God, but to have that thought heavy on you for all of eternity is part of the curse. But then Paul says this, Grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Here's the great news. For those who are in Jesus, those who are following Christ, you will live forever in eternity. And you know what you'll be talking about for all of eternity? The grace of God, the unmerited favor, 
You will never think of a failure in your life. You will never think of a past sin. You will never think of a hurtful word. You will never think of anything like that. The only thing that we will think through all of eternity is how wonderfully gracious our Heavenly Father is. That when I deserved death, I am here with Him for all of eternity. And the reigning thought is grace. Because his grace is greater than Adam's sin. So let me close with this. Which man do you follow? Which man are you following? If you're a child of God, you're following Christ. Let me give you a charge, Christians. You're following Jesus. Do not run after the dead man. Do not run after the Adam. Do not run after the things that the world says will satisfy you that are all passing away. You run, you pursue, you agonize over running towards Jesus with everything you've got. And you walk every single day basking in the grace of Jesus Christ as you walk that knowing that you have been justified, acquitted, and you are eternally secure in Jesus Christ. And you live in that kind of abundant peace. God's grace is greater than Adam's sin. If you're here this morning and you're not a believer, my friend, you're under Adam. You're a representative of Adam. And the only thing that you have to look forward to you to is the consequences of the curse, which is death, separation from God, and eternity in hell. But God is saying to you today, my grace is greater than all of that. My grace is greater than your worst sin. My grace is greater than your worst thought. My grace is greater than your worst ambition. My grace covers a multitude of sins where one sin by Adam covered a multitude of people. One death will cover a multitude of sins. And you surrendering and trusting Christ as your Lord and Savior puts you under a new man that redeems you from the curse and gives you eternal life. There's the picture. Because you and I both know you can't get away from your sin. And if you can't get away from your sin, you can't get away from the curse. But Jesus can break the curse and undo what Adam has done. But here's the great news. No one can undo what Jesus does. And we're forever secure. If you're following Adam, today my call to you is to surrender to Christ. Would you consider Jesus as your Lord, as your Savior? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that even though this was a difficult passage, you've reminded us all the way to the beginning the origin and the nature of sin. But you have also reminded us that in Jesus Christ, we are no longer sons and daughters of Adam, but we're sons and daughters of God and that we're free. I pray, Father, that you would enable us to walk in this freedom in such a way that's great responsibility, that we would be reminded every day that your grace is greater than all sin, but particularly 
original sin. And we thank you that we can walk in freedom. Father, I pray for those who are believers that we would be having a new insight and an understanding to all of these truths. And that would spur us on to tell people about Jesus and the great work that he has done, has accomplished and can accomplish for them. Father, for those who are without Christ this morning, I plead with you, I pray that your spirit would begin to work in their hearts and their minds and draw them to yourself and that they would surrender to the lordship of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Father, we thank you that Christ is our hope. He is our sure foundation. And we walk in him. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. Hebrews 13, 20 through 21 says, Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. This is our hope for you today. If you would like to connect with us, visit our website at scottsill.org slash next steps. Till next time.